Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host this week, Alex Kuro. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And today we're going to be diving into the hot-button topic of abortion and a referendum that was passed in the 90s that has pretty much secured abortion rights in Nevada. Then we're going to be moving on to record sealing and how Lombardo's veto of AB 160 is affecting people with convictions like marijuana possession. And at the end of the show, we are going to be talking about opportunity scholarships and about how some of that scholarship funding was cut and left families in limbo. Hi, Noelle. How are you doing today? I'm good, Alex. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being on the pod with us this week. And it's your last week here as an intern, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'll be done on Friday, which is crazy. We'll miss you here for sure. And now we can kind of swing into this week's topic. You did a very in-depth piece about abortion rights here in Nevada, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. We know that Roe versus Wade was overturned in 2022, but there is something special about Nevada that kind of keeps that protected. In 1990, a good like 10 plus years before I was born, a group of women in Nevada organized to get this referendum on the ballot and get it passed by the voters. That would essentially say, if passed, which it was, that we affirm Nevada's abortion law as it currently is, and it can't be changed except by another referendum of the people. So that law at the time was that abortion is legal in Nevada up to 24 weeks. And then after 24 weeks, it's also legal, but you need a little bit more of a justification that it's for the sake of the health of the mother or that the fetus isn't viable. And so that has been the law in Nevada since right after Roe v. Wade was decided. And then since 1990, it hasn't been able to be changed. So even without Roe v. Wade. Nevada still has that law on the books. And the percentage of Nevadans that support enshrining abortion access in the Constitution is 62%, which is the same number that referendum actually passed by. It's not really something that if it were to go to another popular vote that would get overturned. So it's pretty much here to stay for the foreseeable future. And I know that your article digs really deeply into the organization that pushed and had this passed. What was their name again? So it's called Campaign for Choice. And basically it was this group of mostly women, but also some men that came together. They started having some meetings at the Planned Parenthood in Reno after a second Supreme Court decision called Webster versus Reproductive Health Services in, in Missouri. It upheld a law in Missouri that restricted the use of public funds for abortion. So at that point, a lot of activists started worrying that would set a precedent that would allow states to continue to like chip away at the legality and access to abortion. So at that point, they were like, okay, we need to do something because our legislature is mostly men and it's split, but one house is controlled by Republicans. And we need to do something to make sure that the legislature can't repeal abortion rights in Nevada. And so that's how it started. And when you were going through all of these archives, which you were telling me you spent a couple weeks there, just the UNR going through all those What was one of the most interesting things you found or something that really stuck out? Something that was really cool was that 
they had all of these like letters saved from the different political consultants they worked with the campaign did basically helping them like set up a strategy for how to get enough signatures to get the referendum on the ballot in the first place it was interesting to see how much they emphasized reaching out to all different types of people and i think that was really like something that the campaign wouldn't have been successful without and it was very bipartisan they had a lot of republicans involved as well as democrats I was actually going to bring that up. And so they did have to focus a little more on privacy instead of like outright access to abortion. Yeah. And this was a point of contention. I think having a really diverse coalition was a big strength, but it also is a challenge when you have 30 different groups of people represented that all have different ideas and interests. So there was some sort of divisiveness. Some of the activists felt like we need to say abortion. This is about abortion. We need to be explicit. We need to be as clear as possible and say we're not going to stand for our reproductive rights being threatened. But the prevailing thought was that Nevada is a red state and we need to work with that. And so the messaging that they use was very much about this is a private decision. Do you really want the government in your bedroom? They really framed it around ideas of freedom and privacy. And even a lot of their ads have American flag, bald eagle, that kind of imagery. So it really was a campaign that would appeal to everyone, even the white religious Republican men in the legislature. Yeah. And it looks like, I mean, it worked. Here we are now in a post Roe versus Wade world. And Nevada seems to have this kind of protected. It has been really crucial in protecting abortion rights. Anti-abortion activists recognize that. Like one of the women I talked to was like, this was devastating. Like we knew we're never going to get this off the books, probably in our lifetime. So it's definitely been really strong in protecting abortion rights. Abortion access is a different can of worms. If you do realize that you're pregnant and want to terminate that pregnancy early enough to take medication and have a medication abortion, that's a little bit more accessible no matter where you live and is a little bit more financially accessible also. But if you are in a later stage of your pregnancy, you need to go in and have a surgical procedure done. Nevada does have five surgical abortion providers in Las Vegas and two in Reno. So much of Nevada is very rural and there's people in Elko and Ely and other rural communities that are hours away in the car from those clinics. And that adds transportation expenses. Unless you have a friend or a family member in one of those places, you have to find a hotel. And then the procedures themselves, if you don't have insurance that covers that, can be anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars. Abortion access in Nevada, though legally protected in practice, is very difficult. And it's especially difficult for women in these rural areas, women without the financial resources to make that happen, and women of color, which is the trend nationwide and who abortion restrictions and lack of access affects the most. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing when we're talking about this hot topic of abortion, right? That there are aspects of it that a lot of people I don't think understand, even myself, like I said, access to abortion instead of abortion rights. So all these women in the 90s were fighting just for the rights. Yeah, access is definitely its own whole thing. The story was already really long and didn't really have time to get into that. But I know that other reporters have covered that a lot and done a good job illustrating that just because it's legal, 
doesn't mean that everyone can have it now. And I think that's something that organizers were aware of in 1990, but it was like, we have to start somewhere and it needs to be just the right. Because if you don't have the right to abortion, then whether or not you have access is a lot less important. With the women that you interviewed for this, both pro and against, what were their feelings now that Roe versus Wade was overturned? The anti-abortion activist that I talked to that I mentioned pretty much was like, this is not even something we're going to even try to overturn because it's just not going to happen. And I think their focus is more education for alternatives and stuff like that. For the women that did work on the campaign, this was 30 years ago. I think a lot of them are in their 60s and 70s now that they were in their 30s and 40s then. And some of the other women that worked on the campaign and were like mentors for them at the time, were in their 60s and 70s. And I think the younger organizers in 1990 were thinking, now that this is passed, thank God we're not going to be thinking about this when we're that age and we have grandchildren. And so I think now a lot of them are very emotional. When I talk to them on the phone thinking about how now here they are 30 years later in the same position that those older women were at the time where they're still advocating for abortion rights and still feel like it's threatened. Thank you so much, Noelle. Thank you. And I hope you have a great last week of your internship. Hi, Nyoka. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. So I know that you just put out an article about record sealing here in Nevada, which basically makes it harder for potential employers or landlords to find information about low-level convictions like marijuana possession. And this can actually make a big difference for people who are applying for jobs or housing, because having a record, even for small offenses that are no longer crimes, can really make that process a lot harder. Nevada lawmakers actually passed this bill this session to make the record sealing process easier and more automatic, but Governor Joe Lombardo vetoed this. And so I'm wondering if you can just run us through what's going on with all of that now. What's happening right now, our Clark County commissioners, they're trying to push for automatic record sealing. Folks can get record sealing in Nevada. And what leaders have been doing is funding these opportunities by supplying certain organizations like the Legal Aid Center with money to help people seal their records, specifically focusing on people who have cannabis convictions because of its new decriminalized status. And as far as these marijuana convictions go and these lesser drug convictions, who are these affecting the most? Based on research, those convictions have been disproportionately showing up in Black and brown communities. Your Latino communities, Native American, Black communities have been hit hardest with these types of crimes. And we do know that drugs like marijuana are used by everyone, right? And I know that this also affects things like finding housing, finding a job. They definitely impact all people. Cannabis is widely used. White, Black, Latino communities, it's a widely used drug. But now that it's legal, leaders want to remove those convictions that keep people out of jobs, out of housing, while this new legalized industry is ranking in billions of dollars in sales. 
And I saw in your article that you bring up Code for America a lot. And what was their role in this policy or or lack of policy now that we know that AB 160, which was brought forward, was actually vetoed by Lombardo? Code for America is a technology company. It's based in the Bay Area. And what they do is they help governments digitize their records and they come up with a strategy, which includes policy sometimes, to create a state-initiated record-selling initiative. That way, if something is decriminalized, or let's say this person's offense can now be sealed because of statutory laws, they will not have to petition a court to seal those records. Now the state would just initiate sealing those records themselves. Okay, so that is what this big measure that Lombardo vetoed was talking about? Correct. Code for America presented policies after conducting an investigation for nine months to see where Nevada was when it came to records. And they were able to come up with a plan. They talked to several different courts to see how could all of these court systems work together to do a massive record selling program. So they presented. AB 160. So record sealing does happen here in Nevada. And so what was this AB 160 built upon? The initiative with Code for America, that built on the Nevada Second Chance Act. The Nevada Second Chance Act was passed when Commissioner McCurdy was an assemblyman. And he introduced that policy that would allow individuals who have been convicted of a crime that is now decriminalized to petition the court for record sealing. And that passed. And that's when he stumbled across this whole idea that, oh, wow, it's very difficult to seal just even one record because you have to go to all of the different courts and agencies that may hold this record and ask them to seal it. So we've definitely heard some of the arguments for this, and we know that it did actually pass, but Lombardo was the ultimate reason that it did not go through. In Lombardo's veto message, he said he couldn't support it because record sealing is an act of judicial grace. And some folks should have to prove that they're rehabilitated in order to receive record sealing. He felt like the new policy would prevent that kind of check and balance in the system, but there was going to be a system put in place where before records are sealed for a particular crime, courts would be notified. That way they can choose to object or in 30 days, it would automatically just seal. And now that it has been vetoed, where do you see or where does the state see this kind of initiative going? After the policy was vetoed, Clark County Commissioner's are still focused on bringing state-initiated record sealing. Their plan is to talk to law enforcement and see where they could come together on a plan that they both can agree on. Thank you so much for your time today. It was great to talk with you. Thanks for having me anytime. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Alex. How you doing? I am doing great. I'm happy to be here with you, and you're in Vegas, and I'm in Reno. It's true, and yet we are both in the path of a hurricane. I guess by the time listeners hear this, we'll find out how much of a tropical storm actually hit. I just saw that on Twitter, and I'm a little scared, but we'll make it. We'll be alive. Yeah. 
going to stock up. All right. Thanks for being on today. And we're going to talk about a topic that you're fairly familiar with. You've done quite a bit of reporting on this with our education reporter, Rocio, about opportunity scholarships. So real quick, what are those? Yeah. So to put it in the simplest terms possible, they are essentially school choice scholarships that go to uh, certain low-income families to fund uh, tuition partially at private schools, usually private religious schools. And why is this so controversial? Why is Lombardo talking about it now? Yeah, that's a good question because it's been a controversial thing for a long time, but really simmered in the background. So this, I think, gets into what happened both in the legislative session and then after the legislative session. So during the legislative session, Governor Joe Lombardo, a Republican, he campaigned on school choice, he campaigned on expanding school choice, and he quickly zeroes in on opportunity scholarships as his opportunity. So what he says is, okay, I want to drastically expand this program to give more access to more students. So what he proposes is basically taking the funding level from about $6.6 million annually of tax credits to about $25 million annually of tax credits by tying it to a percentage of the state's education spending. It's all very complicated, but the long and short of it is that he was going to expand access as far as the amount of people who could even use opportunity scholarships. Right now, you need to be making 300% of the federal poverty line. In Nevada, that's about $90,000 a year for a family of four. He wanted to bring that to 500% of the poverty line, which is $150,000 for a family of four. So then Democrats just do not budge on this. They say this is a non-starter. We are absolutely not going to increase the program. They basically say that their compromise position is leaving funding flat. They basically argue that plenty of Democrats in the caucus want to get rid of it altogether, so the governor should be happy that we're even agreeing to leave it where it is. And there was a lot of budget negotiating that blew up at the end of the session. There were budget vetoes. It was a whole mess of things. And in that shuffle, opportunity scholarships got axed and never came back. So... What happened after the session? Okay, so for a couple weeks, there is not much because everyone was focused on baseball in the Oakland A's. But behind the scenes, these third-party organizations are the ones who actually handle the scholarships. They're called SGOs, scholarship grant organizations. It turns out that the biggest SGO, an organization called a AAA, goes to the state and is first in line. And because they are the biggest, they ask for basically all of the available tax credits. Because the tax department has to give it out in line, they give them all of the tax credits. So when two or three other SGOs behind them get to the front of the line, they find out actually there's nothing left. And so we reach a situation where those three SGOs say there's something like several hundred students who are applying for scholarships who would get them ordinarily but can't because this money no longer exists. And so this becomes a policy problem and then rapidly a political problem. The governor basically says this is a disaster and I'm going to fix it. So he proposes using federal COVID dollars to plug the gap, but he can't just do that unilaterally. It has to go through the interim finance committee just to be real specific. And that is controlled by Democrats. So Democrats have to agree to disperse this federal money, $3.2 million, to cover these students that are going to get dropped from their scholarships. 
And that is really where it blows up last week. The Democrats rejected Lombardo's premise. They called it a manufactured crisis because they say that that big SGO, AAA, had enough money to cover the other SGOs who didn't have the money. Basically, the law is written that the SGOs can carry a balance forward. They don't need to spend all of the donations every single year, and that they also have to plan out. So if they take a student on, they have to be able to cover that student through their entire high school career. And so if you take a student on in elementary school, that becomes a lot more money than if you take a student on as a freshman in high school. And so AAA basically argues that they were bringing in all this money to make sure that they were solvent for years to come, you know, more than a three-year cushion uh, for all of the, the students on their program. Whereas the other SGOs, obviously, because this crisis happened, were running much leaner deficits. Democrats basically look at AAA and they say, you have $12 million in the bank. After this year, you have over $20 million in the bank. So why should we give you extra money? Why should we give anyone extra money if AAA already has all this money? Problem being, the Democrats can't actually tell AAA to do anything. What ends up happening is after the Democrats reject the proposal to use the federal dollars, Lombardo tells AAA to give the money to the other SGOs. And so for now, crisis averted, can successfully kicked down the road. But there is nothing stopping this per se from happening in 2024. All right, thank you. I have definitely learned a lot from this. Yeah, I hope that made sense because it's a lot. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Noelle Sims, Nyoka Foreman, and Jacob Solis for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by Alex Kuro with additional help from Joey Lovato and Michelle Rindels. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at theenvyindie.com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. I'm your host this week, Alex Kuro. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.